Hi, it's Jack from the MMA Island Podcast. Before this video gets started, before you listen to the podcast, big shout out to our sponsors, BetUS. If you are going to place a bet on MMA, basically any sport, do it through them. Their, their program is so great. They have everything that you would need to make a bet, to, to look at the bet, the props, everything there. If you want to do a parlay, it's there. Please go through BetUS. The link is in our description, in our bio. It'll be on Instagram. You can find it everywhere. BetUS, big shout out to our sponsor. I'm Jack Kennedy, and they hit a lot harder in my opinion too. What is up everybody, my name is Caelan McNamara, and everyone's got a plan until they get hit with my views. I am Hunter Boss, he just wanted to go to the distance by the looks of it, but he couldn't even do that. And this is the MMA Island Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MMA Island Podcast. I am Jack Kennedy alongside Keelan McNamara, and today we are welcoming one of the top MMA journalists in the world and one of the best mind-slash-analysts in the game today, Robin Black. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, super thrilled to be here. Like uh, You guys are doing cool stuff. And it's cool when when people are kind of, you know, you see different perspectives in different waves of people doing things. There's there's high end people who did things in in 1999, 2005, 2010. And each wave, when you get to the the people who are doing something interesting in each wave, they always have something sort of a different perspective and stuff. You guys are doing cool stuff. But I will tell you, I am not a journalist. Uh, you said uh, MMA journalist. I'm just not one. I don't know how to do journalism. I don't know. How to do, I don't break stories. I'm not much of a reporter. I don't even do particularly good interviews. Analyst. <laughs> yes, I analyze martial arts. That is definitely what I do. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. Of course. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Starting with the news. Michael Chandler released a very fascinating quote saying that he would be he would force Gagey to say, take the first step back in their fight. Robin, what do you make of this uh, from Michael Chandler? So before we look at any quote, in fact, I'm shocked this isn't always every conversation. Why would Michael Chandler tell us the truth? Right? Why? Right? So think about this on every single thing that is ever said by a, by a professional athlete, a performer, politician, anything. This is, a, and, and let's narrow it back to fighting. This is a part of combat, right? Uh, the, the fight begins, for the Diaz brothers, the fight begins the day you sign it. But for many of these athletes, the fight is ongoing with you that you may ever fight. Um, misdirection, showing people different strategies, manipulating thought, uh, making somebody believe you are something you're not. This is something that, that gamblers do, um, that, that poker players do, and that combat fight artists do. Michael, there are, we start with two things. Michael Chandler could be telling the truth. Michael Chandler could be lying. And Michael Chandler could not know which of, of those two things he's doing. Um, if he's telling the truth, great. He, he would still be telling the truth, not for us, or just because the guy who asked him a question wanted him to, to tell the truth. He would be doing it for his own purposes. And that, I love Michael, he's a wonderful guy. What I'm saying does not make him a bad person. What I'm saying makes him a great strategist. You should never tell the truth in an interview. You should always say what will sell a fight, 
make you some money if that's important to you, what will perhaps affect uh, the, the people buying, speaking about your fight, what may affect your, your opponent and so forth. So Michael could very well be playing a game of, I'm going to, something he does extremely well, we don't think about this with Michael, but he does extremely well, backs up stomps and throws, invites you, times you. We think of Mike in his highlight reels, jab, jab, overhand, right, knocking people out unconscious. Michael moves extraordinarily well. So my thought, my initial thought is always, there's a very good likelihood that this is just either something to sell pay-per-views or something to affect the thinking of my opponent. It could could be telling the truth, but Michael's super smart and he wouldn't waste the chance to use words as a tool. Um, so, and that's that's almost always the thought. Um, you know, often what we'll do is say, oh, well, if Michael does this, then Justin might do that. And if he takes down defense and if he moves his feet, that's just all conjecture. And that's kind of what athletes want us to do when they say certain things. The words are as important a strategic tool as a punch or a kick. Yeah, I mean, how do I follow that up? I mean, I, I've been completely outgunned here. And no, I, I mean, I, I absolutely love the points Robin's made there. And I think they are just to a T. You know, Michael Chandler is a far more intelligent fighter than a lot of people give him credit for. He is really one of the modern masters of modern fighting psychology. Even in his debut against Dan Hooker, he was very misdirectioning in his planning he said one thing he came out he flatlined Dan Hooker very very well the thing I love about Michael Chandler is especially when it comes to this particular narrative and this particular line of questioning what makes me so excited with a fighter like Michael Chandler is that I believe he actually is telling the truth because he's one of these fighters who will always come out and who will always push the pace and who will always look to get on the front foot straight away as soon as possible. If we look back to the Charles Oliveira fight very recently, you know, Charles or Michael was adamant that he would take the center of the octagon, that he would use that late jab. He would try and establish dominance and he would try and get his rhythm in before Charles could get his in. And I believe he is strong enough and certainly fearless enough to try and do that to a fighter like Justin Gaethje. As we've seen many times in the past, very few fighters are brave enough to stand up to Justin Gaethje and try and push him back to the octagon, try and push him back to the outlands. Because Justin Gaethje, you know, I don't need to emphasize how hard he hits because we know how hard he hits. His job is like a hook and his hook is like a bomb. I mean, we've seen that with Michael Johnson. We've seen that with so many of his fights. Even the Khabib fight, there were a couple of occasions I do think he had him quite nastily stung. So I really like this narrative from Michael Chandler. Obviously, I love Robin's point around why he would come out and tell us the truth straight away. I think it's because he wants to engage Justin Gaethje in that firefight. I think he wants Justin to have his hands down and to meet him in the center of the octagon. Because the one fighter we've seen who had that level of success, who got Justin to put his guard down and to wildly swing for the bleachers was Dustin Poirier. And I think Michael Chandler rates himself highly enough to match that level and meet him in the middle and put his best foot forward and try and land that killer blow. So realistically, it remains to be seen whether Michael's even telling the truth or not. I just think Michael Chandler is that very rare breed who who will say something because he truly means it, or at the very least, he absolutely intends to implement it the best he can. So 
of Robin's two options, they're almost the red pill or the blue pill of the Matrix. I think this could be the blue pill. I think Michael Chandler might be telling the truth. So there's, uh, if you go on YouTube after you watch this and you put in Robin Black, Eddie Alvarez, mm. I'm sitting with Eddie the day before he fought um, Justin Gaethje. And Eddie um, and I chatted yeah, 20, 30 minutes about it. And he was like, I will match the enthusiasm. And I believe that it will fatigue him. And then in the third round, I will finish him. That was copied by Dustin Poirier. Yep. Uh, and so the low level thinking. So if we are not a lifelong combat artist or, or think, trying to think like one, the, the low level thinking is like, say, I'm, I'll, I'll switch it to, to Nick Diaz for a second. Well, if you want to beat Nick Diaz, all you got to do is kick that lead leg because he's heavy on the lead leg and, he's, and he throws a large volume of punches. That narrative is horseshit, right? Because Nick Diaz is a human. And if Just Bleed 420 on Twitter can identify and say, uh, the way to beat Nick Diaz, well, there's two, two issues. One, Nick Diaz is a human. Uh, and that human is not a is not made of fixed quantities. That human can change. If we could sit on Twitter and go, the way to beat him is to do this, unless Nick Diaz was, you know, not actually connecting with the rest of reality, he would also go, hey, wait a second, people are going to do that. The the two things that a smart, you know, a, a lifelong strategist, a strategist, a strategist of fighting will then do is go, they're going to try to kick my leg. Again, the low level would be, don't let them kick my leg. The middle level would be, check the leg kicks. The high level would be, train when leg kicks come that they destroy, I destroy people every time they throw a leg kick. So I take that same thinking and I apply it to Justin Gaethje. Michael could be saying the truth, but Michael's really smart. And what Michael knows is, Eddie had a strategy to defeat, Dustin, to defeat Justin Gaethje and it worked. Dustin followed that strategy and it worked. If I follow that strategy, that has now been done enough that Justin Gaethje has been waiting for someone to follow that strategy and it's a bad strategy now. So I would be willing, and, and this is not the, root, the way I tend to think about fighting. I love to think of it as this open-ended thing that is constantly changing because that's really what it is. But I, if somebody said, you have to make a prop bet, on Michael Chandler versus Justin Gaethje. The one I would pick is Michael Chandler will try to take Justin Gaethje down within the first two and a half minutes, right? And it, it, why? It's different, different's good. Also, and again, I'm, I'm gonna, this is how I think I, I fraction off into different things, but I don't know if you remember BJ Penn kicked um, uh, uh, um, Sanchez in the head and cut him up wide open. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do you remember? Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. So VJ Penn had said his entire life, don't throw kicks in MMA. He wrote a book. It was called, I forget. I, it was nicknamed the Bible of MMA at one time or the big book of MMA. I can't remember what he actually called it, but throughout that book, he wrote, don't throw kicks in MMA that don't make sense. Maybe, maybe the odd leg kick, but I box and I wrestle and here's why. He wrote books about it. He talked about it. What that was, was such a high level of lying and intentional misdirection to set one day, set up a head kick. You can lie literally for nine years so that 
people on the internet say, well, uh, the thing with BJ Penn, his boxing is blah, 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 but his wrestling is, yeah, but he doesn't throw head kicks. Once we get to the point that BJ Penn doesn't throw head kicks and we universally all believe it, that's when BJ Penn throws a head kick, right? Michael Chandler, when we say Michael moves forward, Michael put, get, likes to, to I, nobody has analyzed Michael Chandler longer than me. Um, and I mean this with humility and because Michael's a dear friend and I'm, I'm scheduled, I believe, to go and film some things around him over in the next couple of weeks and Gaethje as well. Um, but, and uh, I know Michael and I know that, his, that he thinks long-term and, and a style of long-term thinking is be something long enough that everyone thinks you're that thing for the purpose of it'll be really easy when you're not that thing one day. And uh, again, sorry, I, I meander all over, uh, but, but Jose Aldo never looked better, right? He looks incredible. Jose Aldo got knocked out by, by Conor McGregor and they changed his life for the better. Uh, the next time he fought against Frankie Edgar, they were prepared to fight him, the, the, to fight Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo, the best pressure fighter in the game, mean left hook and a, and a hell of a low kick. This guy put, pushed people back, but he fought that whole fight backing up, throwing uppercuts and hooks. Go back and watch watch. 10 Jose Aldo fights and then watch the Frankie Edgar fight. And you go, Oh my God, this guy's so brilliant because he, he, he is not the world's greatest pressure fighter. He simply expressed himself in the role of that for 12 years, knowing that at any moment, if people came to fight that guy, he could be a different guy. Michael's this style, this style of thinker. I'm not saying that Michael has thought any of this stuff specifically and therefore said, right. I won't take a step back for this purpose, but I also wouldn't pin it past him. That Michael is absolutely capable of this. If you, if I sat down with Mike and I said, Mike, um, you know, tell me the truth. I swear to you, I will never repeat it. And he knows I wouldn't. The, the, the fighters know that the, the right. ones I'm close to know they can trust me. I would not say a word. If I said, bro, you're trying, you're planning to take this guy down, right? Like you're, you're going to be, he's like, and I, I would not be shocked to be like, fucking right. I'm telling you, I'm going to put it out in the world. I'm going to repeat it over and over again. I'm going to push this guy back. I'm going to meet him in the center of the cage. I'm going to hit him with fire. And then I'm going to take his ass down. I would not be shocked. Now, if that is so, uh, and I, when I see Michael in 10 days, if, if that's so, he'll be like, bro, if he watches this, he'll be like, why did you even say that? Not that it matters. <laughs> All of this conversation, what you say, what they say, what the junkie says and fighting says and, and Triller says, whatever, like and Twitter says, all of this is part of the point when a fighter says something. And that's why we remember we can use it as a tool to stimulate conversation. If the three of us were sitting at the UFC desk, we'd be like, bro, well, you know, this guy pushes this guy back. Yeah, but you know, and I've seen this guy, you know, when he's backpedaling and he uses that distance management, and like take down defense. And we just start doing that thing that we do to sell fights that we do that the UFC employs us to do in expensive suits, wearing lights, really fun. We could all just do that. But we leave, we, we go, when we decide to do that, we leave reality, which begins with Michael could be lying. And that is the most important part because that is the beginning where we then go, if it's the truth, it's this. If it's a lie, it's this. Wait, And it's. I also feel like this, although people that are watching right now can be like, holy shit, that guy's using some form of amphetamine and he's obsessed with martial arts and he's clearly crazy. That's also a possible th um, observation someone can make. But another one they could make is, wait a second, 
Yeah, there are a lot broader ways that lifelong martial arts experts think that are way outside of the narratives that people like us discuss, mm. right? And that's factually true. Oh, yes. Hey, absolutely. I mean, that is such a great point. Just that whole breakdown was amazing. And I agree with you. I think the overall thing here is that he's trying to sell the fight. I think I, I, you, you, what you said was absolutely perfect. If you, the more you read into it, the more you go to hypotheticals. And the truth yeah. is, we just won't know until the fight. That's, just, that's the yep. truth of any fight, and we won't know. The biggest thing here is saying that. We know what Justin Gaethje does. He stands there and bangs and puts on a show yep. every single time. Michael Chandler does the same. And also by putting this out there, he's saying, okay, I'm going to do what Dustin Poirier did. I'm going to do what Eddie Alvarez did, like you said as well. So uh, it's going to and be- For 20 minutes, we've have, we have rambled on about these two geniuses. So we've done what he set out to do. Exactly. These brilliant masters of fighting will fight each other on what? Is it November 5th or something? Something like that. November, something like that, right. Something early yeah. November. Right. People like us will now discuss this 20 minutes at a time, an hour at a time. It's, and some of us will yell at each other on Twitter. You're an idiot. <laughs> you don't understand how hard Justin Gaethje kicks. All of this will help do its the purpose, which is ultimate. And, you know, Michael's a genius. And, and, and so is Justin, actually. This is another one of those weird ones. When, when I was, because Eddie Alvarez, Michael Chandler, Justin Gaethje, these are among my favorite fighters ever. Absolutely. So I get really excited when they get to fight each other. But I also am kind of sad because somebody has to lose, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, just just to add on to that because I just think that is such an amazing path of conversation. You know, going from the reality into the hyperbolic of what could be. And um, I think another great example that really adds to Michael Chandler's character in terms of the type of fighter that he's built to be is actually Stipe Miocic, and that he's that mm-hmm. sort of guy who has so much success for years in that one area of knocking other heavyweights out and knocking them out and winning emphatically. And then you almost come to a crossroads in his career. And the crossroads I think of is the first Francis Ngannou fight, because I remember the narrative going into this fight. And not only was it disrespectful to Stipe, but the sole narrative that was being presented was How's Stipe going to stand up against Francis? How's his stand-up going to compare? Francis is just going to knock him out if he lands one punch. And people totally forgot that Stipe is a college, uh, he's a Division One college wrestler. And to feed into the point Robbins just made, which is perfect, you've just teed it up for me perfectly, and I have to thank you for that. You know, he went into this fight and he did the one thing no one expected him to do. He ragdolled him wrestle-wise for five rounds straight in Boston, in the TD Garden. And we all came out of that fight thinking, how the hell did Stipe Miocic do that? He should have been knocked out in the first round. Stipe played the game perfectly. He Mm -hmm. led us down this road of knockout, 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 Fabrizio Verdun, knockout, Travis Brown, knockout. And then when it came to a dominant killer like Francis Ngannou, he changed the game. He flipped the switch. And I actually think that's an amazing point because that could definitely be what Michael Chandler's lining up. I love that. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. Absolutely. It's fun. It's fun to think about these things. Definitely. Definitely. So we have some other really, really exciting fights coming up on UFC 266 just three weeks away. Uh, let's go ahead and start breaking down the three main fights, starting with the return of Nick Diaz. It will blow the roof off the arena. He's fighting Robbie Lawler. Robin, what do you think about this fight? So, yeah, I, I mean, I get really excited when when the Diaz brothers fight, when I don't I don't know what the world is going to look like in 2029. 
right? Like our 2031, none of us know. But we don't expect there'll be many of these kind of professional, these kind of humans competing in high level professional sport of any kind, um, combat sport, hockey, football, it doesn't matter. Because this this is not just storytelling. This is, these guys grew up, you know, uh, on the fringes of society in where they lived, you know, they're, they're, they are street, you know, now you become wealthy, your version of street is different. I've never been to their home, but I'm sure there's just free running shoes stacked up in one room. And I'm sure the other room is where everybody plays video games. And the other one is where everyone gets high. And then the basement is where they, they fight. You know what I mean? That's like, they're really what they are. Right. And that's just, just so special, right? That's what you love. That's what, and, uh, and there's been my whole adult kind of fighting consumption life. I've been fascinated with, with the Diaz's and, through and and Gaethje is one of these. He's there's elements of him that are that are raw and visceral. He may have come from a different place, but but when you talk about Robbie Lawler versus Nick Diaz, let's 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 agree what is useless to discuss, right? Um, Akilin, you tell me what you think. Their last fight, irrelevant, uh, um, irrelevant. Seventeen years ago, yeah, that was UFC forty nine, yeah, right? right? What, what, yeah. How long ago? Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, irrelevant, right? We can like there's no law against it, and we're not going to get fired or like get in trouble if we if we discuss it. But we're being facetious right. if we discuss their first fight. Other than oh my god, it was amazing, right? Uh, and so, but if you were to look at it, you know, I've done this. Uh, this will come as no surprise to anybody if you if you look at sort of what the things that I tend to do and, and release, I've made literally thousands of breakdown elements of videos, analyzing martial arts and doing things with the footage to reveal certain things. I have taken scenarios where, you know, similar rhythmic styles and combinations happen and then lined them up either with other fighters or the same fighter later in time. And I've, I've split screened it. If you were to find particular phrases that look the same phrases of combat combinations, exchanges of the one and then the other in 2021 and, and showed that it wouldn't just be like when you see the old NFL, they, they have leather helmets and, and it's just, and it's black and white. It wouldn't just be a time thing. You would be watching sort of, the human body and mind change over the years too, right? And how an artist changes. Um, so that would be interesting. But so what else is, is I think, um, facetious to talk about? I, I would say, quite honestly, the techniques that Nick Diaz uses to fight. So for example, if we were to say, well, you know, Nick Diaz, the way he fights, he puts a lot of pressure on his front foot. And so he uses a lot of uh, punches, not, not, full commitment with his body, but lighter, you know, you could say that. And that has happened in a small sample size of eight or 10 fights. And, you know, but why would it would be more likely that Nick Diaz fights quite differently than he did when you last saw him fight. Right. So talking about how now you could, of course, say a particular uh, things to, to his, some of his thought process, but he's a human that can change as well. You know, um, one thing I think we could agree on is he's very likely, it feels so intrinsically natural for these guys to attempt to make you 
uncomfortable with hand gestures, words, facial expressions, that just feels like it's so in them, it would be very difficult to change. Having said that, what if Nick Diaz like, you know, were to play, were to be just like a super respectful martial artist throughout. And then, and, and bear with me, this sounds crazy, but it, for people who have fought a lot and in fights to be like, you know, wow, Robbie, that was beautiful, really wonderful sweep that you just landed there. Now that sounds crazy to you, but when I was fighting a guy once and I had him against the, the fence and I had my hip in and I really drove back and drove, committed my hips and hit him hard, he goes, oh man, nice shot, Robin, that was nice. And it fucking threw me. Like it completely threw me. Imagine how bizarre that would be with, with Nick Diaz. You'd start thinking, what is this guy? What, what is he trying to do here? Is he, is he playing a game with me? So when I say that he's consistently seems to be something, he's a brilliant strategist. He may understand how to use that. Uh, there was one other example I wanted when we touched on this in that last fight and how our extrapolating of things based on how people have behaved is part of, of strategic manipulation is to make us think that. Is when Conor McGregor landed left punches on people, that left hand developed a reputation, right? Not just because of the results and you saw footage, but I called it the Celtic cross and my friends in EA sports called it, put that in the name. Yep. Faraz calls it the touch of death. Somebody else calls it, the Joe Rogan calls it the greatest weapon in all the fighting. So if I'm Conor McGregor, I can use the threat of my left hand to get a reaction from you. And then that reaction is what I plan. And, and there's a way to think of this. And this is something from investments they, they use. You don't play the news. You play the reaction to the news. So the news would be the housing market is dropping. If you play the news, you sell your house quick, get out. You play the reaction to the news. You go, the housing market is dropping. So people are selling houses. So hold on to your house and maybe buy another house, right? You are playing the reaction. So Connor, instead of worrying about landing his left hand, he can get, you will respond because this is dangerous and he'll do something to that. He used his left hand to kick Cowboy Cerrone in the face. Do you know how many fake punches he had to throw to do that? Zero. He had to throw zero because we did all the work for him. Yep. Yep. We all did the work for him. That he, he faint, he used zero fake punches to set up the head kick that the reputation of that punch set up the head kick so you if you're th if we're all sitting here and instead of playing the 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 um the response we're playing the news we're all doing Nate, nick diaz's job for him we're like nick diaz does this 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 is how he behaves now robbie lawler's way too sophisticated to just believe what we believe right right but for for younger fighters that you know and for other people that may not be true but but you get an interesting fight. I don't think it's one that makes any sense to try to just compare and contrast. And that's something we do a lot. Again, it's a, it's a television job that we've all kind of emulated. This guy's good at this. This guy's good at this. If he does this, but then the other guy stops doing that, then we're going to get at this, right? That is a formula that we use on television. We all emulate it. This is, and we call that breaking down fights or, you know, the analyst desk or whatever. And our jobs all of us, Keelan, I know this is something you do a lot. Our jobs is to realize, wait a second, am I just falling into a formula myself? 
Because if we all sit around and go, well, Nick does this, but Robbie's really good at that. Robbie's got that crazy power. You know, he's a wrestler. He's a southpaw. Like, if we just do that, we are falling into the same formulas, right? So uh, that doesn't seem to be something that that makes a lot of sense. So what does make sense? Again, I'm, you know, we're we're 30 minutes into it, and I've spent a lot of time uh, exposing, I guess this is my belief, and I guess this is a truth for most of us. We don't fucking know, right? We really don't know. Yep. Like, that doesn't always make good sound bites at, on the desk when I'm wearing a suit employed by Bellator or one or the UFC or whatever, but that's the truth. If the producer says, Robin, give him, give him the truth. Instead of Robin looked at camera two and talk about his takedown defense. Well, okay, you paid me. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'll look at camera two and I'll talk about takedown defense. But if you ask me to tell the truth, I'll tell you, I don't fucking know, but I'm super stoked to see it. God, where, where do I even begin with <laughs> um, this? Just, there's so much we can say. And Robin has, his immense credit, said most of it. You know, I'm going to start with the cult of Nick Diaz because I think that feeds mm-hmm. so much into why we love this fight. I think, Robin, that's what you were saying as well. Mm-hmm. Nick Diaz is one of the last outlaws. Mm-hmm. Him and his brother Nate really both are. And the reason that we both love them and the reason why even when Nate Diaz was fighting the likes of Kurt Pellegrino and when Nick Diaz was fighting the likes of Robbie Lawler, a lot of fighters go up and down on a trajectory of popularity and personality, the Diaz brothers have always been very, very high, regardless of the status of the fight card they're on, because they are real. You cannot replicate authenticity. That's why authenticity is beautiful, especially in the world of social media, especially in the world we live in today. The most natural thing is the rarest thing. You can't find authenticity anymore. And this is why we're drawn to the Diaz brothers. Like, even from my perspective, he's an, even as an Irish mixed martial, even as an Irish mixed martial arts fan, when Conor McGregor was fighting Nate Diaz the first time and the second time, I cannot tell you how many Irish fans love Nate Diaz, even though we wanted Conor to win, because real does recognize real. Authenticity recognizes authenticity. And there's so many people in the world in very many different fields of life, whether it's sports, politics, culture, social media, and we can see right through them. They're transparent. We know they're fake. We know they're projecting a narrative that isn't really true, that they don't live at their very core. Nick and Nate Diaz have completely rewritten the script because they are the script. They're the script of their own cult of personality. They live what they are. They say what they mean. They mean what they say. Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz are out running triathlons. Nick and Nate Diaz do smoke weed every day. You know, a lot of a lot of the true culture of the Diaz's, it's become cool and popular, you know, to smoke weed and to sell CBD products and to do all this sort of thing. They've lived it. This is their mm-hmm. life. And real people know that they are real. That's why they're loved. It's so complicated and yet it's so beautifully simple. Uh, like so many people I talk to and so many people I say, so many people I talk to, I'm sure you gentlemen are the same. And I say, why do you love Nate Diaz? Why do you love Nick Diaz? They've never been a champion. They've never had that many title shots because they're true to the game and they're true to themselves. And anybody who knows mixed martial arts, anybody who knows life knows that that is the case. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why these guys are popular and that's why they will always be loved. In fact, I said this on one of our podcasts a while ago, Robin, a few weeks ago. That's why fighters like Nick and Nate Diaz, 
It's why guys in boxing like Arturo Gatti and Irish Mickey Ward, two of my favorite fighters ever, will be loved more than many multiple-time world champions because they're real people of the people. They live their story. They live their own truth. And that's why these guys will never be forgotten. And it's why they will always sell out wherever they go because people know they're real. You know, a lot of people very high up in the media think the average working fan is stupid and that you can present anything you want and they'll just buy it. And that's the biggest mistake you can make because the average fan is often more intelligent than the executive presenting the fight. The average yep. fan can see right through everything. Uh, and the average fan can see the truth for themselves. And they 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 are fans. Nick and Nate Diaz have been lifelong yep. mixed martial arts fans. And that's yeah. where they work because they are truth. They're not that far from the fans who are watching them fight because they've always been that. And it just is it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. Yeah, it is. Now, um, enough about that. On to the fight itself. This wrote down what you said here, by the way. I wrote down what you said. The most natural thing is the rarest thing. I like the way you put that. I, I can't oh, believe I've just gotten that compliment from Rob. <laughs> so really nice. I'm, I'm checking out of here. I'm done. <laughs> and, yeah. no, Let's I'm, get drunk. <laughs> hey, I'm done. Next time I'm, I'm over, yeah. you know what's happening. All three of us. <laughs> no, um, yes. on, on to the fight itself, though. And this fight's, got, this fight's amazing for many, many reasons. But... The beauty of Nick Diaz is that Nick Diaz can bring any game he wants to a fight. I mean, I completely agree with Robin and that it is generally extremely facetious to discuss 2004 because 2004 feels like three lifetimes ago. But Nick Diaz is so good and that he can still utilize elements of 2004 perfectly in 2021. When Nick Diaz first fought Robbie Lawler, you know, everybody thought Robbie Lawler was going to punch a hole straight through Nick Diaz. He'd go in and he'd bury him where he stood. I remember that fight. The first second the bell rang, the first words out of Nick Diaz's mouth that he bawled across the octagon were stalked in mother effort and he started banging himself. And Robbie Lawler thought, what in the hell is happening here? It's like you said, Robin, almost similarly to when you swung that beautiful right hook into your opponent. It completely destroyed his game plan because everything that he thought he knew was gone and out the window. And Nick Diaz's psychology is almost more important than his physical fighting game because his psychological game is so intrinsically linked into what he does physically. And that's why he's broken so many of his opponents before he's had them beaten because his opponents don't know what's coming. He could be the he could be Heath Ledger's Joker, or he could be a gentlemanly, respectly fighter. We've seen both those characters so many times, and it's worked well to such great effect. Mm-hmm. One fight that I love referencing for Nick Diaz, even though many people disagree, is actually the George St. Pierre fight. And the reason I love using that fight is, is that even though GSP, obviously one of the greatest fighters has ever been, pretty much dominated every single round, Nick Diaz never relented. Nick Diaz was constantly with the trash talk. Like even on the ground, I think it was the second round, George St. Pierre landed a beautiful double leg near the cage. And I think Nick Nick said, I could be wrong, but I think I heard him say, is that all you got, bitch? And it's it's, it's that sort of thing. Like George St. Pierre has never been broken psychologically, but Nick Diaz is the closest that anyone's ever gotten to breaking George. And even towards the end of the fight, he was starting to pepper George. He was starting to land. But Nick Diaz didn't set up his physical offense with feints or moves or anything. He set it up with his mind. Yeah. 
and he set it up with his mouth and that's why him and Nate are so unique they take punishment they don't stop talking and they defeat you verbally before they defeat you physically I don't think I've ever seen a fighter do that before and we will probably never see a fighter do that again now on to Robbie Lawler yep. briefly I love Robbie Lawler Robbie Lawler is one of my favorite fighters ever because the guy has got the heart of a Roman centurion and a lion fused somehow. But the guy is just an absolute monster. I mean, I don't even have to tell you the fights that he's been in that I think are the greatest of all time. Carlos Condit, Rory McDonald. I still remember where I was when Rory McDonald yeah. happened. Yeah. The, the top- second um, and the second fight with um, what Hendricks. Johnny oh, Hendricks, yes. I mean, the first fight. Second was one. Too. Oh, both won. Yep. Both, but that second one. We'll talk about that in a second. Go on. Absolutely. Definitely. And, you know, Ro- Ro- sorry, Robbie Lawler, I keep thinking of Rory McDonald. Robbie Lawler is just such a legend because you could throw a sledgehammer at his head and he will keep running through the fire towards you. He will always still be there in the fifth round. And even if it's uh, Rory McDonald and he's spitting blood at him through that awfully gashed lip, that's how he beat Rory McDonald because Rory McDonald was probably beating him up until the fifth round for the most part. But it was that fourth round when the horn went, squared up to Rory, didn't give an inch, spat the blood on the ground, said, come mm-hmm. on, is that all you've got? Yeah. And that's why I think I link Robbie Lawler and Nick Diaz so much, not just because they fought, but they beat their opponents in presence before they beat them physically in terms of damage. And that's mm. why I love this fight because these are these really are, and I hate saying this because I wish it wasn't true, but these two guys are the last of a dying breed. Yeah. They are these guys that will stand there, they'll hammer their chest and they'll say, give me whatever you've got because I have got more. And I, I almost don't even want to break down the techniques like Robin said because I think they're also a tad facetious. Yeah. I just think yeah. just the psychology and the mentality is how you work out the best part of this fight. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I, I, you guys touched on it so great. This fight is going to be amazing for so many reasons because we're getting the return of Nick Diaz after so long, and that's why you can't really break it down. I don't think too much stylistically or, or in the stuff that Robin you guys just said because we don't know what Nick Diaz is going to look like coming out there. Is he going to be like GSP versus Michael Bisping, where he was gone for like four years but came back and put on one of the best performances of his career, or is he going to look a little bit slow? Have to get into it. I, I honestly, it's it's so good. What I want to say first off, though, is everything we were talking about, Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz, applies to Robbie Lawler as well. Because that guy is as real as it gets. And mm-hmm. even what you said about them being the di- the last of a dying breed is absolutely accurate. Because those guys go out there, they look at, they look at each other right in the eyes and go to work and, and, and deliver performances. And why they're so beloved as well is because who they are is a true fighter and who they are is why they are so exciting whenever they go into fights because of their personalities, because of who they are is why they go down there and they throw down and just put on a show for everybody. And it, I love every second of it. Um, I think we're going to see an absolute war whenever they do fight. I think that's one of the only few guarantees of this fight of what we're going to see is that mm-hmm. they will absolutely go out there, put everything on the line for us to see. Um, and it's just, it's so good. Robbie Lawler is a fascinating fighter because yes, he's been up and down in his career, but one thing has been consistent, especially towards the end after he lost his belt to Tyron Woodley is 
even though he hasn't been, he hasn't really won too many fights since then. Every single fight he showed up ready to go, even though he might not have been the best, you know, stylistically in that fight. One I want to point to is especially Ben Askren. Whenever Ben Askren was first coming into the, you know, the UFC against Robbie Lawler, Robbie Lawler's a little bit, you know, people are like, oh, he's washed, you know, he's a little bit past his prime, you know, everything like that. Robbie Lawler went out there and first thing he did was like slam Ben Askren to the ground, did that classic Robbie Lawler performance. Obviously, we know how the rest of the fight turned out and everything. And that's a whole other topic for a whole other day. But that just shows who Robbie Lawler is. Even past his prime in the UFC, he's still there. He's still a fighter. And he will absolutely bring that against Nick Diaz, who you guys already said everything you need to say about Nick Diaz will bring it. And that is why people will watch because it will just be an absolute war. It will be amazing. I cannot wait. It's going, yeah, it's there are there are other great fights on on that card, oh, and 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 Chandler Gaethje is on a card with title fights as well. But those are the two fights the rest of the year in the UFC that I'm the most interested in, um, and will be the most sort of nervous that feeling where you're like nervous, like you 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 almost don't want it to happen, like yep. because somebody's gonna get fucked up that you want. Yep. You no know, other like, in the world. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really there's there's a lot of interesting, so many interesting things about it. Like I I have done a, a, a podcast with a a, um, uh, a sports psychology consultant, David Mullins, for many years, and I worked with him as a performance coach of mine to, uh, as well. And then I've been wor- working on a book with a, a professor of psychology from the University of British Columbia about combat sports psychology. He's a, a a doctor of psychology and I'm, I study martial arts and have um, the perspective. He came to me and asked me if I w- want to write it with him. And, and, and so we've, we together with those two, and I have another psychology uh, friend, Tra- Dr. Tracy Trudeau, and we've really dug into a lot of these for, for going on a decade now. And Mullins, who is the, the working sports psychology uh, consultant, and he did work with Conor McGregor. He did work with, it's not that, that whole team, SBG, is public. I know many of the other fighters he's worked with, including champions, but some of them aren't public. So I'm careful of who I, I name. Right. Um, but um, one of his, gr- the greatest examples of, of uh, psychology of, of high level combat sports psychology that he's ever, he and I've discussed on our podcast and he's talked about many times is in round five of, of Hendricks versus Lawler one uh, Lawler is taken down and he's losing and he knows full well and you're he's, we're, we're aware to varying degrees based on many other factors, but pretty safe to say they knew they were two apiece going to that round. Lawler's been taken down. Lawler's being held down. Lawler's trying to fight his way out and he doesn't get out. I think I did a breakdown of it. It's on YouTube, perhaps if you Google Hendricks, Lawler, Robin Black breakdown, maybe, but it's years ago. But you see the moment and you see... Lawler hitting him and he's kind of looking at the clock and he kind of, and he literally goes something along these lines. And uh, he lost. And then he went on a run until he gets and, and, and addressed it. I gave up. That can't happen. This can't happen at this level, but it does because we're humans. Like many of us will be sitting around and go, look, that guy quit. It's like most of us that say that actually quit a lot of things like, right. you know, uh, a lot of our lives. These are people who have progressed all the way to the highest point And at the highest level of duress, it is still in us where we can fail, fail ourselves in those moments. And he did. 
and then he went and he improved and he was better every fight. And then when he fought that again, you see the beginning of round five and he literally, and you know, to some degree he has spoken about this, but you see it it's clean as day. I gave up on myself. I let myself down. I failed mentally in the most important moment of my life. I'm getting it back. And he fights all the way through until he gets it back. And you see the joy in his face as he starts round five again, around he needs to win and he destroys this man and it's incredible to watch from hendrix one through the wins that he had through hendrix two and that was the the title i believe did lawler take the title from hendrix i can't i believe he did right and you look at that and you and i god let's let's find out we need to find out uh who he'd be in between because it's incredible i i urge anybody to go back and and watch that so so he loses to Hendricks. He beats Ellenberger. He beats Brown. And, and then he comes back again. Yeah. Um, he, he knocks out Ellenberger. Super, super confident. He beats up Matt Brown. And then he comes back. And when you watch round five and you think of it, and you watch all four of those fights in a row and you see it, you see a guy who's like, I have taken back control in my life and very rarely do we get one chance, but I willed myself to two. And here it is. And now it's, and it's an incredible thing to watch. It's an incredible, incredible thing to watch. Um, and uh, I would urge anybody to go and watch those four fights in a row. And, and, and then pause when you get to the round five, because you see it. It's as clear as day in the, in the face and the body language and the nonverbal uh, and the posture of this human being. It's really amazing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is just such a great moment. Yeah, that's that's one that I remember very clearly because I love all every Robbie Lawler fight, especially on that second wind he got in his career is incredible. But especially the Johnny Hendricks fights and then obviously Rory McDonald. That one is probably the best welterweight fight of all time. And then McDonald and Condit came after that. Why were those next two so great? Because he had broken through a psychological plateau and and for that stretch, for that stretch of of the, the loss to Ellenberger, to Brown, to Hendricks, to McDonald, to Condit, until the day that Woodley landed that, that, that sprinting right hand on him, that is one of the great performance stretches ever at high-level combat. And Absolutely. it's incredible. And it, that he has that for the rest of his life. That will be a part of Robbie Lawler's story. That is a part of his true intrinsic life story for the rest of his life. Um, and it's, he's also capable of it on any night again, because he knows that's a part of him. Uh, and that's what Nick Diaz gets to deal with. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we get to watch. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. So that's actually not even the co-main event of that fight. Now let's talk about the co-main event now. Valentina Shevchenko defends her belt against Lauren Murphy. Robin, what do you think about this fight? Lauren Murphy is super dangerous, super talented. It uses, you know, I, I don't know her, her length measurements, arms and legs uh, offhand, but she appears and fights long and wiry, uh, very skilled. You know, mm. again, I've, I've moved away from just listing what's great about somebody. So right. 2013, I sat at a desk with my friend, John Ramdeen, and we had a show and the camera would come to me and I'd say, Laura Murphy's a killer, man. She uses long striking, able to push somebody back, but she also works equally as well backwards. Now we've seen that a few, and I'll just list why she, that I think of that now as compliments and hype, right? Like, so she's great. And Valentina, then sometimes we'll say, well, you know, this guy uses the low kick or he's, he's got beautiful double leg takedowns. And that to me now is, tool discussion right and and i feel like we get lost in that one real easy 
we can be watching Khabib fight or Valentina fight, and we're like, she has beautiful head kicks. Valentina doesn't have beautiful head kicks. Valentina just throws a head kick that she's been throwing since she was four years old. She that's like saying that you know the person who painted the Mona Lisa had a beautiful paintbrush. It's like that's not the point, right? Valentina Shevchenko's kicks are not the point. You know, her her, her black somebody's black belt in jujitsu is not the point. They're artists, right? They're artists, and 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 Shevchenko is just. It's another term that we use all the time. We'll say there are levels to this, right? And it sounds like we're explaining it, and, and we are. But what what are the levels, right? Like, so if we say Shevchenko, if, if after the fight is over, Shevchenko lands 153 significant strikes and then wins in the fourth round, and Murphy lands 79, and, you know, all the highlight reel is Shevchenko will say she's a much stronger striker. She's a higher level striker. Well, what are these levels? How? Why? Why? Does she have nicer kicks? She doesn't have nicer kicks. She just throws kicks, right? What it ends up being is a connection. This is why Valentina Shevchenko is so good, right? So we, let's remove all of what I just said and start with Valentina Shevchenko is better than everybody. She fights ex- except Amanda Nunes and even Amanda Nunes. She was pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, she won many rounds in their two fights against them and many minutes and yep. many exchanges, right? Something we haven't seen anybody else do at all. So why is she so good? Why is she so good? It's at this level, what's happening is it is a, a connection between the cerebral cortex, which is the part of the brain that, that brings in information from your senses. Eyes, of course, balance, you know, proprioception, um, uh, touch, all of these things. That, the speed at which that information comes in, it goes through a process. It has been, uh, your brain, during that moment will take your enhanced um, senses, your enhanced sensory input, and it will instantaneously, with no conscious thought, this is how, this is how somebody slips a punch and throws the punch back, uh, and then steps to the side and then gets underneath the next kick. That's, a, that's so complex. We couldn't teach two robots to do that. So how's the human brain? How's the human doing that? The human is taking sensory input, enhanced sensory input, And then it's processing it compared to a lifetime of different possibilities based on its experience. And then it's quickly telling the motor cortex to put advanced chunked parts of your body. So, so think about what all that is. So if, do you guys do some amount of boxing or kickboxing? Have you done? Yep. So, and uh, so uh, Jack, how long have you boxed? I mean, I, so I've, I've done hours in your life. Very basic. I've, I've done look. I've I've been doing some MMA stuff since I was basically like four years old. But like very very basic level. Let's of. say instruction instruction yeah. of boxing. Okay. You've had thirty or forty hours. Of okay. Instruction, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have another fifty hours of experience. Your brain is going to draw on right. that. When you go to throw a punch, your brain has to say, and you to some degree have to say, I'm going to sit down on here. The ball of my foot will, and sometimes a coach will say, step on the cigarette. Right. It'll train your foot to step on the cigarette. We're going to move our hip this way. As I rotate, I'm going to keep my hips balanced. My hand will turn to here. As I, I'm loading weight into here, and as I come back, I'm going to throw a left hook. All of that is a process for you because mm. you've done 30, 40 hours of instruction. You, you have to go through all that process. Then you'll be training. For Shevchenko, now at 20,000 or 30,000 hours of that, all of that is chunked. 
So she doesn't even think I'm throwing a left hook. Just something happens and that thing happens. It sounds weird to people. And it's weird compared to how we discuss fighting. Even when we're sitting there, you know, wearing headset beside a thing, we'll say, oh, he saw the left hook and he gets under it. Yes, but not in those words. The human eye detected information, compared it to sort of a, a spider web of options and chose the right decision based on life experience, chunking your body to move in such a way that when it comes back, it is able to. And this thing goes on and on and on and on like this. Thousands of these things happening in multiple equations interactively off each other. So as I do something to Keelan and he slips, it moves him set. Uh, now my information updates in my cerebral cortex, tells my motor cortex to move. My body moves out this way. I'm underneath it. And afterwards, I'll ask, you know, TJ Dillashaw, hey, what did you do there? I said, oh, I slipped here and I pivoted out like that. But none of those words happen in his head because they're too, it's too fast for words. That's what the fuck is going on here, right? And, and if you take 30,000 hours of that with Valentina Shevchenko, that is what's better. And that's why she'll defeat almost everybody. She can get punched in the head and knocked out because there's also permanent truths about fighting. The brain needs oxygenated hemoglobin or you will pass out. You must breathe. Gravity's real. Uh, contact to the head can cause your brain to hit both sides of your skull, which will knock you unconscious. There's these realities that also happen. But this is what's happening. So when we say this guy's a dynamic striker and she's got amazing whatever, we're just being assholes kind of, right? Like we're sort of almost saying, oh, he's a great pitcher, but he's a great hitter. Like it's super rudimentary what we're doing. So why am I saying all that? It's, it's the reason I, I'm going this far and I'm going to go way further in the next three years and five years and 10 years is because it's mind blowing what Valentina Shevchenko, it's mind blowing what Lauren Murphy can do, mm. right? It's mind blowing. It's inhuman. It's barely comprehensible to us. And then if I am correct and Shevchenko is just that much higher level. And if they were, I believe if they were to fight a hundred times, Shevchenko would win 87 of them or 91 of them based on this, based on her neurological qualities and their her ability to use focus, her brain's ability to draw on just an infinite amount of experience. She's had hundreds and hundreds of fights, Shevchenko, hundreds of fights, full contact karate, kickboxing, Muay Thai, you know, Savat, like what if there was a way she could fight at any point during her life in Eastern Europe and South America, she fought. That's what's the problem. That's why she'll win almost every fight against almost all of these women. And it's also why you're going to see 17 year olds, men, women, you know, whomever um, come up and you're like, oh, my God, why are they so good? Well, by then they will have had. 18,000 hours of, of training their body and minds to connect in this way, right? That's what's happening here. That's why, but it's so difficult to discuss and we can't do it quickly. It's hard to do in a broadcast. It's hard to do in a short thing. That's why a podcast is such a beautiful environment. When I start talking like this and go crazy, you know, looking into this, we might lose 20% of the people who are just like, that guy's out of his mind, out. Uh, but we but know that. We can yeah, but we can, we can at least explore these things, right? And we can at least, because the big goal for me, I don't need to sell um, UFC 266 for them. None of us are employed to do so. You know, the fighters don't get more money. Uh, well, maybe 
Volkanovsky and Ortega might, maybe Shevchenko might have points. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, we don't need to do that. Uh, but what, what I feel like I want to do personally as a calling is understand on a more true factual level what's happening and then figure out how we could make people realize just how mind-blowing this is humans do mind-blowing shit all the time free climbing up for three hours up some rock face if all we did was say this guy's got amazing grip and really amazing like re-grips he's got phenomenal control on the wall but just giving him compliments and selling a pay-per-view of a climbing thing what's really happening right and uh fortunately I'm still able, even though I'm going off on these crazy tangents and going way down these somewhat uncharted territories, I, I seem to make even a better living when I follow and trust myself to just go, go to these places. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's Shevchenko's just at this point due to what she's been exposed to, she's neurologically superior to everybody that she'll fight. And that part, that's hard to beat. You got to kick her in the head. You got to trick her. You got to get her in the first round or the first couple of minutes of the second round where she's going to smash her face in. And <laughs> that's just what's going to happen as, as long as Shevchenko, you know, in the next two or three years, she could lose. She can also lose focus or some kind of thing could happen. But in the next two or three years, you know, there's going to be nobody better than her. It'll be six years from now. Someone who's 14 right now could be better than her. But today there's no one on earth. There's no women fighting in professional fighting that are better than her in these ways. Uh, Amanda Nunes is, has other advantages that if she's either equal to or even slightly lesser than based on this sort of spider web of knowledge, uh, she overcompensates with other physical and mental gifts and, and skills. Uh, but Shevchenko is the best female fighter in the world, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard to pick up anything original because, again, Robbins just covered that so, so well and on such a deep psychological level as well. Look, there's so many things we can say about why Valentina Shevchenko is so much better than so many other female fighters on planet Earth right now. I could talk to you about her feet and her movement. She's very similar to Vasily Lomachenko in boxing, that dancing background. She's capable of manipulating mm. octagon space and movement to make her opponent literally dance to her tune. She never dances yeah. to her opponent's movement. Her opponent dances to her. People don't give that enough credit. But one thing that I really very want true. to cover, one thing I really want to cover about Valentina Shevchenko is her vision and her perception and how she sees the fight compared to everybody else. Because Robin, this is something I especially love about your breakdowns. You're able to see how the elite of the elite view the fight different to everybody else. And what I mean is this, in Jack, you might know what I'm talking about, but many of us might not. In soccer football, there's a reason why players like Xavi, Iniesta, David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne are considered the elite of the elite. Because on the pitch, in their mind, they almost have an aerial view of the frontal match yeah. that's going on right now. So a David Silva or a Kevin De Bruyne can see the cross or see the through ball that no one else can see. Yeah. And they're able to influence the match and break open the opponent's defense in a way that no one else can unlock. And that's why Valentina Shevchenko is such a beautiful fighter to watch. Even in boxing, we see it so often. One person I'm a really, really big fan of is Canelo Alvarez for this very reason. Mm -hmm. If one remembers, I think it was 2013, I could be wrong, the Amir Khan fight. 
look at Canelo Alvarez's knockout, Robin. I think you actually might have done it. I did this before. I think you did. Yeah, and I what, did. What people don't see are the actual mechanics of the knockout. They see that Canelo flatlined him with the straight right, and they think that's it. What they don't see is Canelo has got thousands and thousands and thousands of muscle memory hours in the gym, preparing every possible opportunity and outcome that that has already been foreseen. And what he's seen with Amir Khan facing straight on is he knows he knows that hook's coming from Amir Khan, that orthodox hook. So what Canelo does is he's already two steps ahead. He's got the straight, and the second he's thrown the straight, he's under because he knows it's coming, and he knows Amir Khan cannot see the straight coming. And that's why Amir Khan's out cold, because he can't process at the same rate that Canelo can. I think this is what we mean when we talk about levels. Some fighters are so developed in their mind and this psychological game that they just process the game differently to others. And some other fighters in boxing, even though I'm not his biggest fan necessarily, Floyd Mayweather, if you look at the Ricky Hatton fight, one of my favorite fighters ever, sadly, but I have to give the man his credit. If you look at the knockout Floyd Lance and Ricky Hatton, he knows Ricky Hatton's angry. He knows he wants to charge in. So what does Floyd do? Perfectly simple. He's one, two steps ahead again. He's by the corner. He sees Ricky coming in, sidestep, bang, Ricky Hatton's out cold. Manny Pacquiao did a very similar thing. And this is what Valentina Shevchenko does almost better than any other fighter in the UFC right now. One fight that I love breaking down about Valentina Shevchenko that I think illustrates this perfectly is the Jessica I fight because we broke this down extensively as well. When Jessica I fought Valentina Shevchenko, they a big topic of conversation were those points that again were almost irrelevant to discuss physical features like reach, distance, all those sort of things. And people thought Jessica I was simply going to physically impose herself on Valentina Shevchenko. Not the case. Valentina is able to manipulate the space, read the space, even from the base, even from the feet, the movement, the dancing background. She's able to manipulate the octagon better than anyone else. So she's already taken away the physical advantages of Jessica I because she has no opportunity to impose them. If your opponent is controlling the dance, you can't impose your movement in that because you've got to be on your own rhythm and your own wavelength. Yeah. So already that's 85 percent of the fight won for Valentina at that point at that point it's about landing the kill shot what she does is she reads it so well she knows Jessica I is desperate for that one chance to move in and land that big shot so what she does is she's a second ahead of the punch she lands that devastating high kick and Jessica eyes out cold and she can't process what's happened because she can't see that it's happening but fighters like Valentina Shevchenko are just such a different level and I actually love that you brought this point up, Robin, because I think too many fans throw this term around without understanding it. When we say there's levels to this game, there's two aspects to the levels of the game. The first aspect is having the fundamental skills, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, the elite kickboxing, the savate, the Muay Thai, whatever it is that you do. The second is how you apply it and how you see it. For example, if you're if there's... Um, a battle from military history going on, say the Battle of Stalingrad, just as a completely random example. Mm. It's one thing breaking it down when you're viewing your opponent head on. It's much more difficult to see that. But if you're capable of taking an aerial perspective, 
that's how you're able to flank your opponent. That's how you're able to mm -hmm. manipulate space. That's how you're able to manipulate how, where the fight goes, how and when. And this is what the elite fighters do. And this is what they've always done. Fighters like Valentina Shevchenko are simply taking the levels to such a height that we have not seen them before. And it's a point I want to bring back to from our last round of discussion. The Conor McGregor aura of the left hand is such a perfect example. Valentina Shevchenko is her own aura because she moves mm -hmm. all these levels and because she puts all these levels so well together. Most of her opponents are already defeated before they walk in the octagon because they're broken up here. So they have no means of applying the physical training if their mental training is already gone. One other example, Caitlin Chikagian. I think Caitlin Chikagian is something like five foot ten, five eleven for flywheel, yeah. which is obviously huge. Yeah. And again, people thought she would simply impose herself on Valentina, and she got dominated because she couldn't control the octagon, she couldn't manipulate the space. She was secondary to the dance, not primary. And this is why Valentina Shevchenko is such an amazing champion. She is always the controller of the dance. She's very rarely ever in danger because she's controlling the tempo, but she fights. She engages when she wants. That means her opponent can't engage. If she wants to take you down, you don't have time to react because you're already on the ground. Her wrestling is so criminally underrated. I just think Valentina Shevchenko is so deeply and intrinsically well-rounded that it's damn near impossible to find a chink in her armor because she controls every aspect of the fight. She's almost like Neo from the Matrix. She's able to slow it down. She can read. She can see what's coming and she's got the antidote for that already before you've even thrown it. I think Valentina Shevchenko is just such a rare breed of fighter. Oh, yeah. Hey, yeah. That's a fantastic way to put it. And you guys both nailed it perfectly. So I won't add on too much to what you said because you broke it down perfectly. Valentina Shevchenko, Rob, I mean, the way you said it was amazing. Just psychologically, she's three steps ahead of everybody because she doesn't have to think about it. It's already there. The muscle memory is already there. She's been doing it literally her entire life. And so that comes naturally. And she's been fighting... The, uh, the other biggest thing I think a part of this is Valentina Shevchenko, especially now, has been fighting at the highest level of mixed martial arts for a very long time. She's had a long championship reign now, and she's at the point, I want to go not even just in the fight, before the fight, in the training camp and everything. She Her last fight against Jessica Andrade, what was the biggest thing everybody was talking about? Andrade won the power, but two, that she might be able to outmuscle uh, uh, Valentina Shevchenko in the clinch situa situations and maybe get her down. Valentina Shevchenko said, okay, let's do that and beat her at her own game, elbowed her yeah. on the ground, literally beat her at what people were saying Jessica Andrade would do to her. That's the level. And that's what we're talking about. That's where Valentina Shevchenko is. She's just mentally and the way she can process things. She doesn't even have to process it because it's already there. And she can then go to the drawing board and just add more tools to her game and keep going from there and just elevate herself to where she's virtually unbeatable. Lauren Murphy, her, I think her biggest, you know, factor in this fight is her, her size and her reach. Like Robin, you said originally, if she's able to go in there and just put it all on the line, anything can happen in MMA. And that's why we love the sport yeah. because we've got some wild finishes, but why most of us, if, not all of us are favoring Valentina in this fight and why we're most likely going to favor Valentina in every single fight she will fight in until the near future or if she fights Amanda Nunes again is because of what we've said at this levels and we've explained why the levels are that way. Um, Lauren Murphy, and, and, and this is what why MMA is also crazy. Lauren Murphy would beat 90% of the women in her weight class in the entire world. Yes. 
which is yes. what's crazy. So that's why when we're saying like Valentina Shevchenko and why we're explaining this, that just makes it even more insane is what's going on like this. So yeah, absolutely. That's the co-main event. Let's go ahead real quick. Let's break down the main event. Alexander Volkanovsky, Brian Ortega. Robin, what do you think about this one? Yeah. Who did Brian Ortega fight after? Oh, yeah. Chan Sung Jung. Yeah. 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 Uh, So Max Holloway, Brian Ortega was the perfect example when we are trying to take the, the cliche of there's levels to this and actually try to make sense of it Um, because Max Holloway. And, you know, I had an interesting conversation with Rich Chow. Rich was this head matchmaker of Bellator as a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. His first fight was maybe 2003, Rumble on the Rock, BJ Penn show. Rich has been in fighting for a long time uh, and he knows it well. And we were chatting about this the other day. And my friend Mallory uh, brought up something about uh, Hoist Gracie, UFC one and two, he knew something. Everybody else didn't know it. Therefore, they had no chance. When it got into this area, he could do things they didn't even know existed. Literally, it's like trying to win a debate with somebody uh, in Chinese, but you don't speak Chinese, right? You're not going to win, right? You're not even going to show up, right? Um, so then we went, uh, I was talking about Michael Venom Page and, and Michael Venom Page beat a very Derek Anderson, a you know top 10 level welterweight certainly top five or six in bellator top 20 in the world very dangerous uh could beat robbie lawler on the right night and michael venom page kicked him in the face and broke his nose and he couldn't touch him and i said you know hoist gracie jujitsu to you or i at ufc one who didn't know what jujitsu was and michael venom page to Derek anderson is the same thing. Just because you've heard of karate or have a blue belt in karate doesn't mean, you know, uh, somebody who's been competing in karate for 20 years isn't as far past you as Hoist was from people who'd never heard of jujitsu, right? It's the same thing. That's where Max Holloway was over Brian Ortega. Max Holloway was Hoist Gracie and Brian Ortega was everybody else. And that's not an insult to Brian Ortega, but that is the level. And then you, and, and it also illustrates the flaws of our understanding. We're like, well, this guy's got great striking, but this guy's also got great striking. He's a great boxer, he's the best boxer in MMA. Well, this guy boxes, but it's not, these are just, these are just words that we create. The word boxing means something in English, but not Chinese. There's a different word in Chinese and it doesn't literally translate to the word boxing. It translates to this collection of skills and strategies, right? The level between was so immense, but there was, but failure is of dramatic importance for an artist or an athlete's journey or all of us. Failure is of massive importance. If you're going to get anywhere in your life, you're going to fail and you're going to learn the failure is going to be important. So if you're, if you're um, Brian Ortega, that night was really important to you. It, what did it reveal? Okay. In particular way of combat, I don't want to call it boxing or kickboxing because those are limiting concepts, right? Or Muay Thai, these are limiting concepts. They limit the way we think. They don't limit you in the way you fight, but they limit the way we think. So uh, he was like, okay, when I am in space and I don't have a hold of somebody, 
and we are trying to bludgeon each other using our hands, feet, elbows, whatever, and or grab each other, I am weak. So if he says, if somebody then says, you better work on your boxing, it's not going to solve the problem, right? It's not going to solve the difference because it isn't boxing. You can go a box all you want. You got to work on your kickboxing. You got to work on your Muay Thai. That's not it. It is the relationship between your feet, your targets, your weapons, your your core, your your pelvic girdle to his. And you know, Keelan, I think about the overhead view a lot. And you're right, I do use it a lot in the way I analyze fighting to give you the overall view. Um, and if you look at at it for for uh, Holloway and Ortega, uh, how from over top, what's happening? It's not Ortega's not as good at boxing, punching or, or blocking punches. It's that he's the relationship of where and when and why is the problem. So he then goes and, and works on that. Again, low level. Well, you got to improve your boxing. No, we have to improve our relationship of be- and manipulation of and control of space between two people. If you take, you ever see those pictures where two people are kissing and they're in white? in the middle it's black and then you look and it'll be like a a vase or something. Mm, Yeah. That's how you can look at the space between two fighters, only three dimensionally, right there. That space is something. That's the thing we want to control. So, and you don't have to control it. You know, um, you guys, I'll hook you up if you're interested. I'll, I'll connect you through email. Fernand Lopez is somebody you should have on the, on the podcast. You know, Fernand, he's, he was Francis's coach. Now he's, uh, He's Cyril's coach. Fernand talks about this a lot. Um, the goal in the beginning wasn't, you know, teach Francis to wrestle. It wasn't not teach Francis to wrestle. It will take us 10 years to teach Francis to wrestle. So we will do that. In the meantime, the goal will be put Francis in a position where he doesn't have to wrestle. Not take down defense either, because that's just wrestling. That's just wrestling with a different name. Take down defense is a horseshit term created by MMA. Doesn't exist in wrestling. Nobody goes into a wrestling room and trains takedown defense. No wrestling coach ever in the history of the world said, guys, we're going to train our takedown defense today. Didn't exist. It was invented by uh, MMA commentators. And now even real wrestlers like Daniel Cormier will use that term on television, but he doesn't use it in the gym because it's not a real thing. And this, this could, there, you can have a thousand comments by people who don't wrestle more than five or six years in high school uh, who would argue this, uh, but it's, it is a limiting concept. Defend the takedown is a limiting concept uh, because I don't want to defend the takedown. I want to keep it, keep us from being on the ground, but I could do that by taking you down, elbowing you in the face, trying to submit you, going to your back, making you tired. Defend the takedown is a is a singular order, and I don't want to limit myself to possibilities and choices and objectives. And I don't want you to know that I have done it, certainly. So we don't teach them that. We, uh, or Of course, we do teach those things as part of wrestling, but as we're teaching them, we teach them to not be somewhere where he can be held. So same thing. Um, Brian Ortega, do we teach him to box better? Yeah. But more importantly, we teach them to, to deal with that gap better, to, to deal with the negative space better, the negative space between the two three-dimensionally moving human bodies that are fighting each other, right? And so if we do that, and that thing, if I'm training him and I'm not, and I'm not a coach, and, and so that, that example is terrible. If somebody that, you know, 
was thinking along these lines would be training him while they would train him to kickbox and box and do those things better. They would be training to use that gap to create engagement so he, he could go back to his lifelong skill of grappling and, and, and choking and grabbing and trapping and, and manipulating and hyperextending. We can call it jujitsu if we want, but that's a limiting concept. Or wrestling if we want, but it's a limiting concept. We want to use, vaporize the negative space so that we can be engaged physically in them. You see a lot more people up on the back choking and would be like, we need to take him down. You don't need to take him down. You just need to make him engage in something you spent 25 years doing that he's only spent eight years doing. And that is some form of grappling. We can vertically grapple, grapple against the cage or standing up on the ground, but that's what we need to do. And, uh, and no doubt, uh, the more we do that, the easier it will be to bludgeon him with the, the weapons of our hands. And so that's what the game has to have been for Ortega. It isn't about what he does or doesn't do. It's about what he has done between, what was that day? 2018, uh, December, 2018 and today. What he has done to change the way that he relates to a, to another body uh, in fighting, and and that's the big question. We saw it against against Cheng Sun Jun, um, uh, but we need to see it now against somebody who uh, who is was able to hang in those in those capacities a couple of times with Max Holloway. So it's pretty cool. Please excuse me. Go on. I'm grabbing my dog. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, sure thing. Um, <laughs> I must admit, I really like the way Robin phrases this because I do think, especially going back to the foundation of the UFC back in, what was it, 1993, Jack? Yeah. I think, I think because we... Oh, what a beautiful dog. He's old. He's, he's oh, an he's ancient lovely. little man. Hello. <laughs> I'm um, just take him out. You keep talking. I'm listening. I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, basically, going back to the foundation of the UFC back in 1993... Because we had so many people who formed the foundations of the sport, especially fanship, I think the mixed martial arts got very sort of stuck in the mud with traditionalist terms that had very rigid definitions yes. that, we, that we simply haven't evolved or that we haven't built away from. And I think that boxing is a very good example of those, especially in the context that Robin just used it there. When it comes to Brian Ortega, Brian Ortega has never been a bad boxer. He's a, he is an excellent practitioner of manipulating that combat space that Robin talks about. He's very, very good at, you know, his decision-making in that realm. Because if we think about it, whenever you go to punch an opponent or an opponent goes to punch you, there's that sort of half second of decision-making in between where you're thinking in your head, where do I go? Where am I looking to land the strike? What impact am I looking to have on the strike? That's why there's such big differences between jabs and hooks and uppercuts and so on and so forth. Because if, for example, it's me and Jack that are facing each other and I'm looking to jab Jack simply to keep him away from pressuring me, yet Diaz... I'm ready for it. Let's go. (laughs) No, I I don't want that smoke. No, um, my point is, if I'm looking to jab Jack solely to maintain distance and to keep him away from pressure... In that half second before I threw the strike, I'm thinking to myself, what's my purpose behind throwing this punch? And what effect do I want the punch to have? It's not just boxing. It's not just throwing a punch. It's intent and it's purpose behind the strike that you manipulate. 
So if I'm looking to jab Jack simply to keep him away from me, I'm obviously looking to land a quick strike, but I want it to have the impact that will form stinging a little bit so that he's not so eager to come in and press in on me. And that practitioning on the feet of what we loosely define as boxing is something that Brian Ortega has never been bad at. And it is something that's almost quite humorous because up until the Holloway fight, you know, everybody said Ortega was a great boxer, had very good boxing. He was very good at manipulating the space. You can't go from being a not bad boxer to being a terrible boxer in the space of one fight because that's simply not how it works realistically what happened was was very much what robbins just outlined ortega ortega's decision making was calm and fluid and reasoned and composed in every fight up until holloway i don't think there was such a hype or an aura of personality until he came up to holloway because we all think holloway is the best practitioner of that loose striking in the ufc right now none of holloway's previous opponents had that tag attached to them so I think Holloway was going in, he was imposing his game plan, he was doing his thing very well, and his decision-making was very fluid and composed and calm. He knew what he wanted to land and he knew what effect he wanted it to have. And that's why he was able to set up the standing guillotines and his various other jiu-jitsu techniques to the effect that he did. I think the roadblock Ortega ran into was that aura with Holloway. And I think the problem was Ortega wasn't stepping into the octagon with just another opponent. He was stepping in, and I think he was thinking to himself, oh, my God, there's no point in trying to stand up with Holloway because he's he's the best boxer in the UFC. And I think for the first round or two, Ortega seriously struggled to find his composure and his range because he wasn't as calm as he was in his previous fights. He was panicky. He was nervous. And especially in the first few exchanges, when he got beat to the punch, he was thinking, oh, my God, I can't manipulate the space. I can't make my decisions properly. And that's what led to what we know what happened in the end. And I think, um, especially another very good point that Robin made, I think um, Ortega, when, when I, after that fight, he went back to his roots and he regained his confidence and his composure in that decision-making and manipulating the space and the feet in that decision-making. What do I want to throw? What effect do I want it to have? I think those things completely went out the window for him when he fought Holloway, and that's what led to his downfall. But we said this as well, Jack, when we were watching the Korean zombie fight live. It was like it was like old Ortega back. He was there. He was he was making his decisions very well. I don't think he threw a straight single strike out of place. Every shot that he threw at the Korean zombie, whether it was a combo, whether it was a single strike, it was with menace and it was with intent and it was with reason. And with all three things perfectly in sync, he never really looked in trouble against a fighter that historically puts fighters in very serious trouble the longer the fight goes. So I think Ortega's psyche and his psychology is back in place. And that's a very, very good thing for him coming into this fight with Alexander Volkanovsky. But with Volkanovsky... He's very underrated, I think, and he's very underappreciated. And I think the second Holloway fight has dented his reputation to a very unfair degree. All right, yeah. granted, it's very arguable that Holloway won the second fight, but that's no that's no knocking Alex Wilkins' <laughs> skills. It's not his fault. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And people are underrating Volkanovsky because of the judges per decisioning for the most part. The thing with Alex Volkanovsky is that I believe Volkanovsky is almost the new style of wrestling. And what I mean is his wrestling is a very good antidote 
antidote to jujitsu. I think Michael Chandler is a very good practitioner of this as well, Rob, and I'm sure you might agree. Yeah. His wrestling yeah. is a very fast, intense wrestling. His wrestling isn't uh, necessarily a Cain Velasquez or a Brock Lesnar wrestling, where it's get you to the ground and just lie on top of you for 30 seconds yeah. and then start throwing strikes. His is a very fluid wrestling where it's get you to the ground and instantly start transitioning and moving and manipulating the space in the ground, throwing strikes, being unpredictable, setting up submissions and setting up crucifixes and getting dominant position. And I think Volkanovski's got a much better chance in this fight against the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt than people are giving him credit for. And I think the precedent that you have to be looking at is the first round of Michael Chandler, Charles Oliveira. Because what you'll remember is Chandler knocked down Oliveira and people forget about what happened on the ground. Personally, I thought when that fight hit the deck, Charles was going to triangle him and have him in real trouble. But Chandler's chain wrestling on the ground, that fluidity, that composure, that speed, that intensity, that was a real problem for Charles's jiu-jitsu. He, he had him in closed guard very well and he was able to protect himself because obviously Charles is the most elite jiu-jitsu practitioner in the UFC right now. But if we look at what Chandler was actually doing on his end, his wrestling was actually providing a very decent alternative to Charles's jiu-jitsu. It was so fluid and so constant that it was very hard for Charles to get a beat on him and to try and get a submission locked in. Because as, as I've said already, Charles is the elite of the elite when it comes to jiu-jitsu in the UFC, and even he couldn't get it. So realistically, Alex Volkanovsky, even if this fight hits the deck, he's got a very, very good chance. I actually think Ortega's best possibilities for this fight could be on the feet. And the reason I think that is probably those physical discrepancies because Ortega's a good two, three inches taller than Alex. And if he and if his um, you know, fluidity with striking is as good as it was against the Korean zombie, Volkanovsky might be very limited in what he can do. So I just think overall, when we analyze this on the levels that we've analyzed all the other fights on, this fight is deeply, deeply compelling on multiple, multiple levels. Oh, yeah. Hey, 100 percent. I'm going to make this like really quick because I know, I know Robin has to get going in just a second. Um, but whenever we look at the fight with, with Chancellor Jung, the, the Korean zombie versus Ortega, I don't even think that was an old Ortega that we were seeing. Maybe I, I don't even think the mindset was the same. I think Ortega went back and completely not even reinvented his game, but reinvented his mindset to where his old mindset was, I am the, un he was on, I'm the undefeated fighter. I, I, I haven't faced anyone. He ran into that Holloway trouble. And Holloway, I mean, we talk about levels. Holloway at that 145, he still is at that level where he's incredible, mm -hmm. especially striking-wise. He's, he's unbelievable. He ran into that wall. Now Ortega developed a mindset, and he got the hours in, like we were talking about earlier in the podcast with Shevchenko. He got the hours, and he got the experience and to help out with his striking. He took a lot of time off and, and, and redeveloped that. And he came with the mindset that, okay, I can be defeated now. That's, that's off his back. Now, what can I do to be the best possible mixed martial artist that I can be and, and overcome the adversity? And that's what I think we saw versus the Korean zombie. And that's the version I think we will be getting that Brian Ortega versus Volkanovsky. Volkanovsky, so much can be said. The wrestling is incredible. The striking, mixed mar total mixed martial artist, training out of one of the best gyms in the world currently in, out of New Zealand. I mean, the guy has it all. Say what you will about the second Holloway fight. He has on paper beaten Holloway two times. That is an achievement no one else can say. 
Uh, it's going to be an incredible fight, and there's a reason that's the main event and for the undisputed uh, featherweight championship of the world. Well, Robin, thank you so much for coming on. Everyone, as always, please make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube. You can listen to this podcast literally everywhere, including iTunes and Spotify. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at MMA.Island and check out our website, MMAIsland.net. Robin Black, thank you so much for coming on. It has been an honor and a privilege to have you with us. I, I really enjoyed it, guys. Like I said at the beginning, you know, there's different waves of people coming along, but I think uh, the next wave is going to be just fine. I really, really enjoyed this. You guys are doing killer stuff. Oh, it is. It is an honor, Robin. And, you know, you're a big inspiration to us, too. You know, for as long as I've been a fan, you've been one of the main guys, and it truly means the world. And people, for those of you who are watching the outro as well, please check out Robin Black's Instagram and Karate Combat, too. Those guys are doing amazing stuff over there. Boss Rutan's involved. Robin Black's involved. You're seeing the best take on the best every single week. Season three, I think, is coming soon. For the love of God, people, check it out because you're missing out if you're not. Absolutely. That's, I'm so glad to hear you guys dig it because uh, it's pretty, it's really, really fun to be a part of that. Absolutely. <laughs>